This is a HeadGum Podcast. Today's episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast is brought to you in part by... Brought to you by the Academy Award-nominated movie about three extraordinary women who never gave up and made history. Hidden Figures, starring Taraji P. Henson, Octavia Spencer, and Janelle Monet. If you believe, you can achieve. Own a piece of history. Watch Hidden Figures now on Digital HD. And on Blu-ray and DVD, April 11th. What do you say when a handsome millionaire hires a team of bodyguards and asks you to lead them? If you're sane, you'd say, hell yeah. If you're Alex Stone, ex-vampire hunting assassin with problems of your own, you're blackmailed into taking the job and looking for the fastest way off the planet. Why, you might ask? Because the millionaire is a vampire and the bodyguards are covert operatives who travel the globe to police supernatural activities worldwide. And for a woman known as the Dagger, protecting him might just bite. The Dagger Chronicles series by paranormal fiction writer Janice Jones begins with book one, In Her Blood, on sale at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and Amberjack Publishing. Book two by Blood Sworn, available August 22nd. With the power in her blood, she's all in. By Blood Sworn. In addition to the Black Girl Nerds podcast, check out some of these other podcasts that you can find on your favorite streaming apps. Hello, this is Shadi Anozier with the SNC podcast. Join me bi-weekly as I talk with some of Nigeria's unique music producers and songwriters about their creative process and more. Follow us at the SNC podcast on SoundCloud. Cheers. Tune into the Unapologetic Podcast with lifestyle, wellness, entertainment, and cultural commentary geared towards bridging the gap between millennials and Gen Xers. Subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes, as well as its online presence at www.unapologeticallyus.com. Hi, everyone. I'm teaming up with the website Rewire.News to explore the intersection of their work and mine on a brand new podcast called Get It Right. On Get It Right, we explore pop culture through the lens of justice, and particularly reproductive justice. I'll be talking to critics and creators about comics, movies, TV, music, anything is fair game. You can find it now on iTunes or Stitcher to search for Get It Right or Rewire. Give it a listen and drop us a review with any ideas for what you'd like to hear us cover. See you soon. My name is Amanda Span. I am the founder of Alchemy App, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, what up, y'all? This is Jenny Ellis from HBO's Insecure, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I am Alelia Bundles, Madam C.J. Walker's great-great-granddaughter and biographer, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, this is Daryl Bell from Planet Earth. Now, actually, I'm from a different world, school days, and, well, Chicago. There you go. I'm from there, too. And it's a joy and a pleasure to be here on the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is Rain Roberts. I'm a creative executive at Lucasfilm, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, my name is Natalie McGriff, creator of the Adventures of Moxie McGriff Comics 
and you're listening to Black Girl Nerd Podcast. Hey, I'm Effie Brown, and I'm a producer of Dear White People, Real Women Have Curves, and recently you probably saw me on HBO's Project Greenlight. And you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is Shanae Gibbs. This is Chanel Gibbs, also known as the Gibbs Sisters. And we're on the Black Black Girl Girl Nerds Podcast. tuning into this episode of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled The Cookup, Sex 101, and Clexicon 2017. Three segments. In our first segment, I have a one-on-one interview with New York Times best-selling author Dee Watkins, known for books like The B-Side and The Cookup. In this segment, we talk more about The Cookup and we also talk about what it was like growing up in the rough streets of East Baltimore. In our second segment, Karan has a one-on-one interview with Dr. Andrea Pennington. Dr. Andrea Pennington is an integrative physician, acupuncturist, and teacher, as well as a sex educator. And that's right, she is going to talk about that lovely three-letter word that we always enjoy talking about, sex. In our third segment, we head on over to Clexicon 2017. This was actually back in March in Las Vegas, Nevada. And Clexicon 2017 was a celebration of the intersection of feminism and sexuality. And on this panel, Kayla and I talk about the platform of Black Girl Nerds and how we use it to foster change and to navigate through a space that hasn't always been so kind to women of color. So that's our show, three incredible segments, fully packed episode and hope that you get a lot of information and feel inspired by each and every one of them. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, and please leave a rating and give us a comment. Let us know what you think. And you can listen to us on several other third-party podcasting apps. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. The Cookup, Sex 101, and Clexicon 2017. Dee Watkins is a columnist for Salon. His work has been published in the New York Times, Guardian, Rolling Stone, and several other publications. He holds a master's in education and an MFA in creative writing. He's the author of two New York Times best-selling books, The Cook-Up, A Crack Memoir, and The B-Side, Living and Dying While Black in America. Take a listen to this interview, where we talk a little bit more about his book, The Cook-Up, and also inspiring moments that led him to become an author. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. I'm writing this one solo tonight, guys, but I'm incredibly excited for this guest that we have. We have a New York Times best-selling author. You may have heard of this book. It's called The Cook-Up, and it's a very raw and honest account of Dee Watkins' life in East Baltimore. And if you haven't heard of The Cook-Up, then this is a great opportunity to listen in and learn more about his story. So I want to say thank you, Dee, so much for coming on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Oh, no, thank you. Um, I follow you guys on Twitter. You guys are the best. Like, I'm, I'm really excited. Um, I totally did not know that. You follow us yeah, on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, on Twitter. I, have, I had this conversation. So my manager, my coordinator, my publicist, uh, my, the, the person who does all of my graphic work um, with my website, and all of these different things are all black women and they're all nerds. So it's like, it's like I'm already like, you know, I'm like indoctrinated into the culture and like, you know, I get, I get, um, I'm very, very blessed to be on the team that I'm on. So I'm lucky and I'm happy. You're in a good, safe space. I'm surrounded a, by black girl nerds. I just want to say. In the safest space. I know all about, you know, like arugula and, you know, like all of these different things that I would never know be a part of my reality. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I really want to learn more about you, and, and I'm certain that our fans and followers do too, and talk about your book, The Cook-Up. Like I mentioned in the intro, it's a New York Times bestseller, and it's based on your real experiences of running a drug empire in East Baltimore. So what inspired you to write such raw and oftentimes pretty traumatic moments that were very personal in your life? So for me, um, I think that you know, I wasn't a kid that really, I was never into reading as a kid. Like, um, I never really read anything. Uh, my brother, he, he tried to, to tell me that I needed to be a reader, but he never really put it in, in the context for me. So um, on why I should read and why I needed to develop those critical thinking skills, you know, to be able to figure out how to achieve success and everything. So um when I got older, you know, the first book that I that I've read as an adult that I actually fell in love with was The Coldest Winter Ever and Sister Soldier's book. And when I when I read that book, I didn't know you could I didn't know you could write books like that. Like it totally blew my mind and it switched my whole, you know, perspective on everything. And that's when I became a reader. And when I became a reader, I found out that there was a lot of people telling me stories about what happens in places like East Baltimore, uh, telling 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 black stories. But they, the people who wrote those books, I could just tell that they don't know any real black people, that they don't have experiences, that everything is, they're writing about is just based on um, how they think these situations are. And that wasn't really true enough for me. And I just feel like it challenged me to get out there and, um, and, and give an honest account of not the glorification of drugs, but how an everyday goofy kid can get caught up in something like this. And it happens all of the time. I know that in an NPR interview, you had stated the following, and I quote, people dying is not a strange thing, witnessing murders is not a strange thing, or being in a situation when you're on a basketball court and somebody starts shooting is not a strange thing. Does that ever go away, or does the feeling, do you feel like the feeling of um, the loss of life, um, does that stay with you? Does it, is it jaded? Or, um, you know, for someone that's grown around it every day, how does that resonate with you? 
you know, I feel like um, I feel like we can be better. I just I don't I just think that society, our society benefits from pain so much and it's never really talked about. So when them, when those young people die, um, when they get sick, um, you know, from the food that they eat because they live in food deserts or when they're not being educated properly and they're almost um, being chaperoned to the system. You know, there's a lot of different people that's getting paychecks off of that. So, um, you know, I think that's the conversation that needs to be had. The people that benefit, the people in this country that benefit from pain, because we never really talk of, they never yeah. really make it a conversation. We we're from like a society of victim blaming, where we just, you know, we blame each other, and and then we allow oppressors to blame us for some of the things that they impose on us. But you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not jaded, and I definitely like, you know, all of my friends that I lost, like, you know, I miss them, and, and I love them, and I wish they were here, and. You know, I would, I would, you know, it would be phony for me to sit here and act like I'm the toughest person in the world. Like I still have nightmares. Like I still hear my brother talking sometimes, and I'm looking around mm-hmm. corners like, huh? Because it's like it's 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 a real thing, but then also it's like um, it's it's just something that I've struggled with and something that I've been going through for a long time, and I haven't really figured out um, the ultimate coping mechanism to deal with this stuff. But I'm also, you know, I also feel like. It's a shared experience from people who come from where I come from. Like, it's not a strange thing to them. I just think we struggle more with how, how to deal with these things. Cause, and, I, and I can't front. I've, I've yet to figure out how to deal with these things. Um, you know, so I understand when some, when some people get, when some people are murdered, like, you know, I'm not saying it's right, but I understand the circumstances that cause those things. And then, you know, when other people get murdered in, it wasn't even like my friend Free got killed a couple of years ago. He was working for the city. Like he had, um, you know, he got he had two daughters, and he was like really pressing down on us to be organ donors. So you know, you get this, this you get this idea of what is it like if a person living a project? So what is it like if a person living in a rough neighborhood? It's just like anywhere else. The biggest thing, his biggest thing, was be an organ donor. That's all he would talk about. We would be like, "Yo, shut the fuck up with that shit!" Like, <laughs> like you know, it's like, "Yo, y'all see the game last night?" Like, "Yo, let me see your license. Let me see your license. Why you want to see my license? Let me see it." Yo, you gotta switch it. I'm mean, come on, man. So, <laughs> you know, so uh, like at least like six of us really became organ donors just so he can stop asking us. And when, when he got killed, he got killed. It was a dude fussing with another dude, and he was trying to like defuse the situation. But the other dude went away. He came back off reckless, and, and and he shot at them, but he didn't hit anybody. The bullet hit the wall, popped off the wall, hit free right in his head, killed him. Just that simple. Wow. You know what I'm saying? And this dude was working for the city. He wasn't like even back when um when we when all of us was in the streets. He wasn't really in the streets. He was just like um. The dude who used to sit around and just commentate on everything that happened in the street. So if I buy like a new car, he'd be like, "Ah, oh, look what my man came through with." Or if I have like, you know, like, like I, I was the first one around that particular time that was like, um, like, like they were wearing like they were wearing like Nike sweatsuits, or people were wearing like, um, they were wearing like seven jeans, and I just started buying like, like all Gucci sweatsuits and uh, Gucci T-shirts, and like, like I try to anything. I would try to wear like all designers. So. Like to try to outdo the next person, he would just pump it up and blow it up, and, and he was that guy. But he was he was funny and he was sincere, and he and he had a good heart. And um, and that's just one person of like you know of of three hundred plus people a year that 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 have to die like that. And it's just and like I said, like I can't get over that, but like it's diff- it's more difficult for me to accept that death than it is for me to accept the death of my brother because like my you know. 
my brother was a hero to me, but you know, he, he wasn't probably a hero to a lot of other people. And wouldn't it be safe to say that being, you know, in a situation where every day his life could be taken dealing with, with drugs and, and, and dealing with folks that have guns and things like that. And in a place that's often violent at times that he was taking those risks on a daily basis and that it probably wouldn't be as shocking as if it would be for someone that's not involved in that lifestyle. Would that be safe to say? Yeah, you know, because, you know, like Free wasn't, he wasn't in the lifestyle, but that was still his neighborhood. And it was still a lot of, it was, and that's where he lived. And there was so many reasons to actually be in that neighborhood. It was a lot of good, it's a lot of good people around there. It's a lot of great people around there. So it's like, you know, um, sometimes, and this is one of the reasons why, um, this is one of the reasons that really got me into writing. Like, there's a lot of people who tell like stories about black people, especially in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like not just black people. This is like, I mean, this is not just white people, but it's like black and white people who tell stories about us, but they got no proximity to the issues. They don't know nobody. They don't help nobody, and they get it wrong. They got this drone-like perspective where they just look down on us. They write these stories, and they, you know, they call us savages and they call us crazy, and 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 and. And they become just an extension. It's how a black person um, becomes an extension of the same white supremacy, you know, of the, of, of the same thing that that allows larger groups to just dehumanize us, you know, because, yeah, yeah the shootings happen. But then it's like a lot of other stuff that happens in the neighborhood, too. So it's kind of why, like one of the things that really, you know, helped me stay or continue to be a writer even though in the beginning nobody wanted to read anything I, I, I wrote at all. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people was sending me straight to their voicemail, <laughs> but I hung in there though. Yeah, you told them, uh, two New York Times bestsellers. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about this book was you go really deep into like the politics of the world that you were involved in um, with dealing drugs and just how that ties into law enforcement and I'm curious to know what your thoughts about the way things are today um, with the new documentary that had dropped, 13th, that talks about the prison industrial complex. Uh, what, what are your thoughts towards where we are today where, you know, the prison industry is seen as a business? I mean, it is essentially a business and that uh, drugs somehow is the catalyst that allows that business to continue to function. You know, I'm, I, I grew up, I was I was born in the 80s and raised in the 90s, and meaning that I grew up when, there's this guy named Martin O'Malley. He was like the third guy that ran for president on the Democrat side. I don't know if you remember him. He was like, you know, it was McCain, Hillary, and then another guy. Remember that? Yes. I didn't remember okay. his name, but there, yeah. So, <laughs> so he subscribed to Giuli- Giuliani's style of policing. Mm. Um Meaning that if you want to look good as a mayor, lock up as many black people as possible. So during his tenure of mayor, he was sued because um, he oversaw 757,000 illegal arrests of African-American people. He was sued by the NAACP and the ACLU. Everybody I know been to jail or got their introduction in the jail through Martin O'Malley. So me... um, I'm an acknowledger. Like, I acknowledge that it's a business. Like, I acknowledge that it's a business. I know my place in that system. I know that when they see me, what type of wave they on and what they will be looking to do to a person like myself. 
And I try to explain that when, when I go inside these schools and when I talk to these young people and even when I go inside the prison and talk about reentry, like, I, you know, I got to I got to work really hard to let these people know that, yo, it's not it's not totally your fault. Like, it's not your fault that you're in a situation. The way these people are treating you, that's a reflection in their own reality, their own racism um, and the agendas that they that they set out there to, uh, to complete. You know, so I think um, I think that's a huge component. I don't think it's getting any better because, um, you know, uh, the jails in this country is, you know, it's our biggest employer. The Americans, we, you know, we lock up more people than anybody. And there's so many people that's making money off of us going to jail mm-hmm. um, beyond the products made inside the presence, but just the jobs like the cops and the FBI and the DEA and CIA and the COs and the people that clean the jail and the people that build the jail and the importers and the exporters and the people that drive the bus and just so many people in this country benefit from our criminal justice system. That is crazy. And I think, um, you know, I, I see they they shutting down Rikers Island, but that's still, um, you know, going to be like a 10, 15 year process. So it's like, how many more Khalif Brothers are we going to see? You know, um, these problems, they, they continue to exist. So, I, you know, I think it's a major issue. And I think I think 13 shed, you know, shed a positive light on a lot of that. Um, you know, but I still think that there's so many, you know, you got to follow the money. And when a lot of people are making money off of the pain of black people, and you already indoctrinated with the ideas that black people aren't people, then you can sleep well at night knowing that you're actually making money off the pain of black people, but they ain't capable of grief anyway, right? That's that's mm-hmm. what Jefferson said. <laughs> and it's you know you, you're right about the fact that there are so many people who are not people of color, you know, white people that are telling our narratives, that are telling our stories, uh, whether it be through film, television, comic books. Uh, I mean, that's a conversation that I have quite often. And they're quick to dismiss us when things are not being sold or distributed and and people of color not, or blaming people of color, I should say, for for not purchasing comic books. I'm speaking of the uh, recent controversy with the VP of Marvel saying that their sales have slumped because of the fact that their diversity titles are not selling. So using us as scapegoats to try to justify why things are not being successful. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. One of those things where it's just like, you know, things change, but then sometimes things stay the same. You had said in an interview that you're still here because of the redemptive power of education. So can you elaborate on what that means and how that relates to your story in the cookup? Yeah, you know, I, I realized that, you know, and this is like, this is like my, like my big, my, my when I knew that I needed like a change, um, was, you know, I, so I said, I'm gonna stop selling drugs, I'm not selling drugs no more. This is over for me. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do something else with my life. So I bought this liquor store and I'm not selling drugs. I buy a liquor store. So, <laughs> you know, but you when you're from the hood, that's what you do. Like when you when you're from the hood, the people that's like the, the cash cow in the hood. Yeah, the, store. <laughs> the, slick, the slick, the slick black people, and that's like the dude with the Cadillac and the woman with the mink on, the black couple, you know, they come in the hood. They live in the they live like in the burbs, but they come to our neighborhood. They own the they own the lounge. So they come and they check on their money at the lounge. So I was like, you know what? 
I know I'm like, you know, 20, 23, whatever, 24 years old, but I'm about to be the slick old 60-year-old couple. I'm about to I'm about to buy this liquor store. So I bought the liquor store and um I didn't make any money. It was a white bar, it was a black neighborhood, but it was a white bar on the corner that had like a real weird white clientele. They was really clicking. And then there was a Korean bar on the other side of me, and they had the whole hood on smash because if I was paying like fifteen dollars for a bottle of Grey Goose, I was trying to sell it for sixteen ten. If they was paying fifteen dollars for a bottle of Great Goose, then they was gonna sell it for fifteen dollars and ten cent. And to this day, I still don't really understand how they were able to do that. Like it's mind blowing to me. But anyway, nobody was coming to my so in Baltimore. There's a lot of bars where it's a cut rate, which is like a carry out in the front. Then you get buzzed, or you can get buzzed into the back, and you can just drink at the lounge, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how my bar was, and you know. You know, I'm very competitive. You know, like I told you, I like to win. I like I like to make money. I like to share it, but I like to make it too. So, you know, I said, you know what? I'm not going to accept defeat. I'm going to figure out how to get money off of this building. So the building sat on the corner and had um, two apartments over top, and then the bar was on the main floor, and then the basement was for storage. So, of course, um, I rented out I rented out the floor over top of the bar to, um, like, not one person, but to, like, like, like I rented it to one woman, but then she in turn um, flipped it and just like rented the rooms out. So she made a bunch of money, and then I made a bunch of money off of that, and we we was doing our thing. And then the top floor, I let it, you know, I made it. I had it in turn. I just I, I I fixed it up and made it like a little hotel. So anybody who wanted to like you know, if you just like if you met the love of your life in the bar, then you could just you could get like a cheap stay like right upstairs. So, um, so I made the, you know, it was like a, you know, it was like, I have like hand sanitizer in there. I put like a mirror on the ceiling. Like it was romantic. I hooked it up and, um, (laughs) 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 and then the bar, the bar was, um, there was these three big poker machines and this is how I get to the redemption power education. There was these three big poker machines, um, and they were kind of like blocking the dance floor. So I called the people up who, um, who owned the machines. And I said, yo, you got to come get these machines. I need the space. So the dude was like, I was waiting for your car. You got it. We're going to keep them there because we're about to make money. So I didn't know what he was talking about. Long story short, I saw these machines in bars my whole life, but I didn't know that like people actually, like the owners, they paid out. So if you got a certain amount of credits, you would get that cash. So I went from not making any money off the bar to started, you know, I started using the poker machines and I started paying out. And then I just started making a crazy, some a ridiculous amount of money. Like I think I made like fifteen thousand dollars the first month, um, all profit because people are addicted to machines. So right. one day a regular was in the bar, and she was, um, you know, she was like, you know, she was slumped over. She looked real sad, like she had like the worst day ever. And I walked over to her and I said, I said, Pat, what, what's wrong, Pat? And she's maybe like a fifty-some-year-old woman from the neighborhood. And she said, baby, these machines, they beat my ass today. Like, you know, I worked overtime, you know, whatever hours a week. And I put my whole $800 check into the machine. So I was like, I was like, damn, that's crazy. So I went to the back. I had like a little bit of money stashed in the back. And I got like $350, $400. And I came out and I said, check this out. You can have this. You know, you don't got to pay me back if you don't want to. Or you can pay me back whenever you get it. You know, I ain't really tripping. But make sure you can get through the week and all that. So she like, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So I go back in the back to like move around some boxes or something. And then when I came back out, she put all the money into the machine. So I'm like, damn, 
yo, I said, I don't, I don't want to do this no more. Like, I can't do this no more. I got to do something else with my life. And that came around the same time as, um, you know, this guy who used to come into the bar, you know, he used to always complain about how everybody hating on him and everybody don't want to see him get no money. But at the same time, I will always give him free stuff. So I'm like, I'm not hating on you. If anything, I want to see you keep your money because you never pay me. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of challenged him to readjust the way he was doing his business instead of blaming everybody for not supporting it. I said, you blaming people for not supporting you, but your clothing line is really trash. And then I've been to the parties you throw and they really trash. Like you throw trashy parties and design trashy clothes. So we're not hating on you, bro. You just, your stuff not really hitting. It's your, it's your fault. Exactly. You know, I gave him that tough love and, um, you know, he, he got, he got his life together. He started doing, he started moving in a different way. So I just wanted to be a teacher and, 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 and becoming hungry, and this is around the time when I started reading a lot, too. So becoming like a hungry person, hungry for knowledge and, 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 and wanting to get that knowledge and share it, that kind of became my purpose. So even before I was doing this as a writer, I was doing it as a mentor. I was doing it just as a student. Like, I would learn, I would learn about um, how racist Thomas Jefferson was, and then I would come back and I would share it with my, with, the, with my homeboys. Or I would learn about, you know, why our school system is so messed up instead of us you know, just accepting that we come, that we got hand-me-down supplies and no technology and teachers that's dope fans and junkies. I would like, I could put it in historical context for um, the people in my neighborhood, especially the ones who had kids, and then they can figure out what they had to do as parents to make sure their kids were being educated better. So it kind of started from there for me, and then it just turned into, and then one day I woke up and like, you know, like the people were calling me, uh, like a public intellectual was in my bio. Wow. What a compelling story. It's weird, right? It's so weird, but like it just happened like that. But see, what you did was you created your own success and you didn't rely on someone else to, you know, provide that for you or to give you a clue or a hint as to how to get there. I feel like sometimes we as people want to have people lay it all out for us as to what steps can we take to you know, have a large income? What steps can we take to be able to move up in the career ladder? And, and it's okay to get that advice and have a teacher and have a mentor, but also take the initiative and, you know, work hard on your own and, and find that information yourself, whether it's doing research in a book or going online and doing a Google search and YouTube tutorials or what have you. I just feel like sometimes we need to not always be so dependent on other people to help us carve a path to success and just create our own path. And and it sounds that's like exactly what you did to get out what of your I, situation. I teach a class. I teach a class. Uh, I, I, so I teach a, I teach a class called Context of the Urban Child at Johns Hopkins University. And that's mostly like PhD and like students earning a master's degree. And I teach them, um, I give them strategies on how they can relate to black children in Baltimore City because these are the people who are like, you know, be in administration and be in education and are going to interact in those worlds. But then I also I'm on staff at the University of Baltimore where I teach um, creative writing. And one of the classes I created is just a class on building the platform. And in that class, one of my students, um, she used she used your website as a case study oh. of what of how, what she wanted her brand to be or what she wanted to look like. So she was talking about um, all of the different um, brands that that she subscribes to or, or, the, or the people who she liked, to, who she really rock with. 
and, and and she talked about black girl nerds and she talked about she liked Issa Rae a lot and she you know she showed clips from Aqua Black Girl and then she showed clips from um um Insecure. So it's like like you have the power now, like you were a mentor to her and like you might not ever meet her. Wow. But you were a mentor to this person. So now she watch your moves and she see the things that you're doing and she can apply the things that she likes to her own brand and build her own thing and in the process inspire somebody else. And and that's a beautiful thing too. Um it's accessibility at a different level, but you know, you inspiring people and it's like it's it's great. So um, you know, I'm um, I'm always happy with that stuff. And, um, you know, I didn't have anybody. Um, there's no writers and no professors and no. Um, so, you know, I got like eight jobs, right? Uh, really? Yeah. Should I just break them down? <laughs> Let me just, you just got eight them. jobs, man. Yeah, I, I got, I, 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 I'm like living color. I got eight jobs. Man. <laughs> yeah. So I'm out of that large for salon dot com. So, um, I, I, you know, I create content sometimes on video sometimes um mostly articles so I, i'm writing anywhere between three to five articles a week or shooting you know like maybe like one or two videos you know like per week so i'm creating up to like five pieces of content a week for them so like um you know i might write about kendrick lamar's video um or i might you know i might air out the um the kardashian you know wash away systemic racism with pepsi girl so i might i might you know i might you know so i had to eat the her real quick um <laughs> <laughs> but I also write about, um, you know, personal essays, my own experience, um, you know, and how some of these bigger issues and things that happen that these talking hits that these talking hits ramble about affect everyday black people. So I'm at at large for salon dot com. I'm the host of that podcast for Undisclosed. Um, I've been working on this big ESPN story that's going to be like a partial show segment for like two years now. So I'm I'm really excited about um, doing that. I'm in the process of developing a show in A&E about systemic racism. Um, I just consulted and now I'm going to be producing a film that Jada Pinkin is going to be shooting in Baltimore when she makes a directorial debut. So, you know, I'm excited that they that they got me for that project and we're excited about making sure, I, you know, I made money and all that. Um, I am a college professor. Um, I'm still on speaking tour, so I'm going to like colleges all over the country. And my speaking tour is so cool because... It's like I went to like middle school students were reading some of my essays last week, mm-hmm. um, and then some uh, two all girl uh, all girl school in D.C. I got a chance to visit today, um, and these were you know so these are high school students, and then uh, you know with the with the same work um, I'm going to be um, talking and presenting at Harvard in like a week and a half. So you got kids from East Baltimore, kids from D.C., and then like Ivy League people at Harvard reading the same stuff, and it resonates with them in a different way, and I get a chance to like you know, kind of bridge some of these ideas through these different groups. And I'm, I'm, I'm extremely happy with that. And then I'm a mentor too. So yeah, I got, I got eight, eight jobs, mine. <laughs> you got one part, got 12 podcasts. And whenever <laughs> you say you have that many jobs, you have to say it in a Jamaican accent. Otherwise it's, it just doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, I, you know what? I completely empathize with you. I would, it would be safe to say I have several jobs as well. Definitely not as much as you, but I think keeping busy helps me. You know, for me, I'm the managing editor of Black Girl Nerds. I'm a host of two podcasts, the executive producer of one. I'm an author of a book that's going to be coming out next year. Congratulations. I, 
Thank I you. About, I know about that. I know about that. <laughs> yes, yes, we have we have mutual friends um, in in yeah. publishing. Yeah. Super um, Asian. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then I I do speaking engagements every now and then at at different colleges and universities and and travel all over, going to comic conventions and doing meetups for folks that are in the blurred community where we can meet outside of the four corners of the internet. So I, oh. I get it. And it's, it's fun for me. I, I, I love keeping busy. Oh, and then I have a day job where I just, I work at a law firm. So um, yeah, I, I, I get that sleeping sometimes is a little overrated. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, like, there's so much going on. I can't. As a kid, I was scared to fall asleep because, you know, I feel like my neighborhood has the best. I feel like East Baltimore has. The, uh, I'm very East Baltimore biased. I just let me uh, for disclaimer. I feel like East Baltimore has the best storytellers on planet Earth. Like anywhere. <laughs> like I just feel like God said, you know what? I'm going to put the best storytellers in East Baltimore and I'll just give other things to different people in different places. But I can give you a quote that kind of, you know, like summarizes what we do. Um, uh, and not to get super religious, but the Buddha said you should be able to see a person work and play and not be able to tell the difference. Yes, I love I that. You love what you do. When you love what you do, it's not even like, like I feel bad calling it work. Yeah. Like, I, I need to make fun of Ben Carson and Donald Trump for a living. That's, Like, man. that's my job. My job <laughs> like, yo, how... Like, how mean can you be to, like, racist is my job. Like, that's what I do for a living. Like, and that's, beautiful that's thing. beautiful. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I would love to get paid to tweet because that's pretty much what I do when I'm tweeting every day. But, um, but yeah, that that's amazing. And, you know, I got to say, you're, you're in Baltimore now. Currently, you still live in, in Baltimore? I love it. I'm not. I got. You know, I had a teaching opportunity um, at NYU, and I had like a better opportunity at Berkeley with with a big job in San Fran. And you know, I opted to stay home. Okay. You know, I'm a local yokel. Like I love being from Baltimore. Like I, you know, like like I. It's one of my biggest honors. Just like up there with being my grandmother, grandson. Like I like I love it. Yeah, I'm here right now. Well, right now. I, I tell you what. Um, in addition to the many jobs I have, my other job is co-founder of Universal FanCon, which is going to be in Baltimore next year in April. So I would gonna, love I'm, for you to come. I'm going to buy a game system. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to buy a game system so I can, I can put these skills to the test. And like I said, I really feel like really feel like I missed my calling. Like I really could have went pro. I think um, Lupe is like a Tekken champ now or something, right? I didn't know about that. I think Lupe is like one of the top people, like one of the top Tekken people in like the world. I think he's like top 10. Oh, wow. It might be an Aquarius thing. Maybe we just get old and just go pro as gamers. Maybe it's like an Aquarius thing. And, and, and that's a thing, like, you know, with Twitch and all of these really cool live streaming gaming uh, sites, people are, in fact, making a living just playing games all day, which is the best. I, I wish I could have that, but I'm not a gamer now. I was a gamer back in the day, back in the Street Fighter days, uh, but <laughs> yeah. not so much now. <laughs> well, you know what? This has been a fantastic interview, Dee. I would love to talk to you again in the future when you make your next New York Times bestselling book. Um, but tell our listeners where they can find out more about your work and also where we can find you on social media. 
Um, sure. So you can find me um, on Facebook, which I don't. I don't really use Facebook. I had to get off of Facebook because my mother was on there. But but it's <laughs> so a lot mine. of stuff. So, I mean, you know, I got keep it 100 with the people. You know, you know, I'm trying to do business and mom's talking, you know, posting party pics. Anyway, um, <laughs> you can so, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, you can find me at D Watkins World. Uh, my website is d watkins.com. And, um, you know, God willing, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be at a city near you. I'm going to have a bunch of dates set up. Um, you know, and, and I'm working on a lot of positive things with, with a lot of positive people. And I'm, I'm very fortunate and I'm very thankful, you know, to meet you. I feel like, you know, this is a part of my journey now and I'll carry it and I'll share it and it, it, it'll be a great thing. Well, I hope we get to see each other in person in Baltimore next year at Universal Fan Con because I want to play Street Fighter with you and beat you as Chun-Li. Just saying. When you come, okay, when you walk in on me, there's going to be people that are going to follow me with belts and they're going to be saying, the champ is here. Like, I'm going to have Ali. Oh, so you're going to have your fight music with you when you're. Okay, gotcha. All right. I will do some searching and find some good fight music for me as well. Thank you, Dee. This was great. I really enjoyed talking to you. And guys, please pick up the cook up. It's available at your local bookstores. You can find it on Amazon. Is it on Audible as well? Can you get it? Uh, yeah, my, both both of my books, the Cook Up and the B Side, are uh, every everywhere books are sold. Um, they have audio versions. They have Kindle versions, iTunes versions, um, and they're both in paperback now too. And um, you know, again, um, I'm very thankful. They both I won awards for them, and you know, people treat me nicer than they should. Um, because I work really hard on those books and, you know, hopefully you can share those gems um, with, with other people. And your story is just inspiring. It just goes to show that you can do anything you want. If you put your mind to it, if you are determined and you're passionate about it, you know, you can do whatever you want and become successful in whatever area that you elect to pursue. So, D, you are a living example of that. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Andrea Pennington is an integrative medicine doctor, acupuncturist, TED speaker, and author of The Orgasm Prescription for Women. She specialized in self-love, mindfulness, and sexual health. She's nationally recognized as an expert in meditation, resilience, and positive psychology. Dr. Pennington is the past medical director and spokesperson for Discovery Health Channel, with multiple appearances on Oprah, Dr. Oz, CNN, The Today Show, and more. talk about the many ways women are taught to deny themselves pleasure. In her book, The Orgasm Prescription for Women, Dr. Andrea Pennington opens up the floodgates to teach us and help us have better lives and live more orgasmically. Dr. Pennington, welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Oh, thank you, Karan. It is always good to connect with you. I um, am so inspired by this book. But why do people shy away and recoil when you say the word orgasm? <laughs> yeah, you, right? It's a, it's a good question. In this day and age, you'd think we were past some of that puritanical nonsense. Mm -hmm. 
I was shocked to find that there are still people who blush and who shy away from it. But you know what? It's, um, I think because for women, at least, the idea that we should be able to talk about, to plan and prioritize our pleasure, um, the time has come. I think what we, many of us have taken on, you know, in this role as moms or as mompreneurs or CEOs and whatnot, we've put ourselves last on the list for far too long. And when it starts to impact your intimate relationship, that's when I get a little bit upset because what we see now is this this continued degradation of the family right? And I'm not saying that sex is everything, but we know that sex is the glue for a good relationship, (laughs) you know? And it's so funny because people always said that finances would ruin a marriage. But what I heard doing the research for this book was, you know what? If Even if our finances make us pissed off, if we got the sex all right, we can come together and work out the finances. Right, right. So what I found is that women need to have a safe place like what you're creating to talk about sex, pleasure, our desires. It is not wrong for you to desire sex or pleasure. It is normal and natural and it is your human right. So I don't know why it's still such a scary topic, but I know that we're going to break it down right now. All right. Do people assume this book is just about sex? Yeah, they do. Coming in with a title like The Orgasm Prescription for Women, yes. They think it's about the orgasm, but you've read the book. You know it's so, so, so much more than that. And it's been really a blessing for me in the last couple of years to hear women express gratitude for it, mainly because it's allowed them to heal. Because as you know, orgasm is, you know, one thing that a, a normal, healthy woman might chase. But if you're a woman who's had any type of sexual trauma, or abuse in your past, orgasm is something that many of these women don't even think about because they can't even be intimate. They don't even allow themselves to get into that vulnerable space. And that's been the biggest surprise for me, to be quite honest. It's the number of women that said, yeah, the orgasm would be nice, but I can't even have sex because they're still hung up on the past drama and trauma that they've experienced. That's something that we don't often talk about when it comes to sexuality. The fact that so many women, I I think I can honestly say in my lifetime, I've only met two women who had never, ever been violated in any way in their entire lives. Only two. But yet we don't talk about how trauma factors into our current sexuality, how we feel about ourselves, our bodies, and being able to express ourselves sexually. Yeah. And what's sad is that most women aren't even aware that, you know, some statistics say one in two women have experienced some sort of trauma, whether that's, you know, just being fondled, maybe not, you know, full on rape or molestation, but even just being fondled or touched inappropriately. Now that's really high, Karan. One in two women. That's every other woman. Exactly. And then when you think about the men, that statistic, we don't even really know because so many boys and men don't tell. They, they don't, don't share that because of the shame. And, you know, even women don't share it because of the, the feelings of guilt. And oftentimes women aren't believed 
They, people just actually say, oh, you wanted that or, oh, you were you were a participant in that. And so it's been really shocking just to see the number of people who've remained silent for years and suffered without any type of support. What made you decide to pen this book now? I know about your Dr. Oz visit a few years ago where people were shocked and stunned that you actually prescribed three orgasms a week for every woman. So why mm -hmm. this book now? <laughs> well, you know the deal. I, Life changing. I <laughs> uh-huh, right? But you know what? I wasn't ready. I When I did that Dr. Oz segment, I wasn't anticipating that people were going to come out and say, oh, my God, help me. I'm, I'm not having an orgasm. Um, what's wrong with me? Um, because as you know, that segment was about heart disease and diabetes and yes. cancer. But a lot of women were saying, okay, I understand now. You're saying that if my blood sugar's messed up or I have poor nerve conduction from diabetes, um, that could impact my libido and my ability to achieve orgasm. But the women who were saying, uh, my blood sugar's fine, but I'm still not getting off. <laughs> it, it opened up this dialogue to talk to women about what was going on in their heads, in their brains, and in their relationships. And I wasn't quite ready for that. It took a few years for me to actually be comfortable, um, you know, counseling people who weren't like my patient. This was just people just randomly calling me up or sending me emails. And at first I was like, is this a crank or someone just trying to get weirdo, right. you know, sex tips? But as you know, when I hosted that show, Sexy Facts, yes. um, with Dr. Michael Dow, it allowed me, you know, because it was radio, it was, you know, anonymous. I could just sort of put on my doctor hat and mm -hmm. talk about it. And I think the popularity of sexy facts and the continued responses from people is what gave me confidence to, to write the book. Um, and you know, I, I always tell the story that I was with some amazing women in Iceland and we were doing a business strategy session. And as we girls do, <laughs> Someone was writing on the whiteboard and someone said, hey, okay, I, I need to go to the ladies room. Uh, I'll be back. So, you know, when you take a break and you've been working all day, you start to doodle. Yeah. <laughs> and someone was drawing arrows and then the arrow turned into a penis. <laughs> <laughs> the conversation turned to sex. Uh -huh. And what was crazy was one of the women, the, the head of marketing said, you know, jokingly, hey, when I was doing my MBA, I wrote up an entire business plan on um, a sex-oriented business. And I thought, really? And I said, well, I've always wanted to write this book about the orgasm prescription. And then the room got silent. What? Every, everyone stopped. They looked at me. They looked at her. They looked at me. And they said, what are we doing? We're planning the wrong business. We need to plan a business around sex. <laughs> wow. And that's when I said, really? And they were like, yes, you write the book. We'll create the website. We'll do this and this. And it was because I was in maybe a protected environment with women who got it. They knew that I didn't want to become some weirdo sex whatever. I'm not a sex guru. I'm a doctor, you know, with, with this background in You're neuroscience. You're not just a doctor. You're a super doctor. You... <laughs> Please clue oh, them in. You're not just any doctor. I met you. You had the fabulous Pennington Institute in Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, and you practice everything from primary care to Chinese acupuncture. So super doc, please give them a little bit of your background. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and you know, it's thank you for that. Uh, you know, 
Uh, I'm not one to, you know, show off, but my background is very unique. Um, I trained in, in America at a traditional medical school. Uh, I started learning acupuncture in my fourth year of med school, where I was trained for alcohol and drug detox. And doing addiction treatment, that led me into the world of trauma. So I got more training on what it is, you know, what happens in the brain after trauma. What is PTSD? How can acupuncture, Chinese herbs, meditation, breath work, all of that can actually impact trauma and addiction. Then, as you know, Dr. P, my mother, we joined forces when we created the Pennington Institute, and she had been using acupuncture for women who had eating disorders. So we started treating binge eating disorder and just weight challenges, and that's when we really created this comprehensive holistic approach. So bringing in positive psychology, neuroscience, Chinese medicine, and just love and spirituality. And a salon and spa. Yeah, that's true. Because yeah. you know, because once you get your body right, you like, you got to look fly. You got to be pampered. And that's a big deal because women weren't pampering themselves. We beat ourselves up a lot internally and externally. So yes, I'm not just your average doctor. I do a lot. And I felt that the women that I was working with in Iceland got it. And that's what gave me the confidence to say, okay, if I'm going to do this book and you've seen it, it's over 300 pages. Yeah. Just don't do it right. So we brought in the deep psychology work to help a woman get past any of her inner hangups, her trauma and drama, her lack of self-confidence, her body issues. We brought in mindfulness and meditation because it helps lower stress, but it also helps accelerate and potentiate orgasms, you know, and bringing in Tantra and sacred sexuality, as well as just general health so that women would understand their body and their hormones and their brain. So that's what led me to write the book. I wanted to empower women to get a full understanding of their body and brain and their soul so that they could live orgasmically. I want to touch on something you mentioned, and that's sacred sexuality. Because so many women don't make the mind-body connection when it comes to sex and their bodies and, and the mind. But there is yet another barrier for those of particular faiths, especially um, I'm a Christian. I'm a sex-positive Christian, but I am a Christian um, whose faith dictates something different. Oftentimes we are preached to and taught that it's only within the confines of marriage, anything else, you're going straight to hell. Um, and there becomes the, the, this, this connect continues to grow throughout our lifetimes where we no longer have, even in our own minds, control of our bodies or the right to our bodies. So what do you say about the sacredness and the spirituality about sexuality and balancing that with faith? Mm. So glad you bring it up. It's deep. I know that there is a divine design in creating this beautiful body that we call humanity. All right. So our bodies and our brains are literally wired for pleasure. Mm -hmm. And it's not just around procreation. If we were able to strip back the changes that were made to the Bible. Okay, let's 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 break it down because remember, around 500 AD, break there it were down so many it will forever be broke. Let it forever <laughs> be broke. 
And it's not just about sex. It's about mm -hmm. all kinds of powers that the divine gave to us humans. I mean, let's break it down. Jesus, the Christ, said, all these things that I do, you shall do and more. So we're talking about the miraculous power of humanity, yes. as well as this divine sacred act that is sex, that is meant for pleasure. And yes, procreation is part of it, but there was never intended to be this thing about shame and guilt that was propagated by people over you know, 2,000 years ago who wanted to control us. And let's break it down. The sexual energy that flows through our body and brain is the most potent energy on the planet. We have the power to create life that makes us like God. And so if you're the head of the church, what do you want to do? You want to prevent people from having a power like God. And so things got stripped out of the Bible. Things got changed and things were propagated down the line to make us fear our sexuality, feel guilt and shame around sexuality. And that wasn't intended. But I know that that's hard to argue with. And I mentioned that in the book. I get it. Yeah. So I, I ask you to go within and really check yourself and ask, would God really create me to have something so potent and yet I've got to control it or deny it? I just ask you to, you know, let that one sink in on your own. But I, as you know, I, I have been sharing that there are several personality types yes. that end up having problems with sex. And one of those personality types is what I call the woman who is blessed but repressed. Uh-huh. And, you know, <laughs> I, I spent my time in, the, in, the, in my holy roller days, as I call it, when I was Bible thumping and preaching Somebody to folks. say a word. Amen. <laughs> amen. And, girl, I was there. Yes, but Lord. Uh-huh. And there were women who were indeed truly blessed. They would walk around talking about how blessed they were and how God was faithful. And yet they were repressed, not only with sexuality, in other ways as well. But I, I believe as I've you know, gone around the world and studied different cultures, there are many cultures that believe that sex, the exchange of energy between two partners is a divine and sacred act. And when we can look at it in that way, we can look at it as a, a gift. We give our beloved a gift mm -hmm. to interact with us on that most deep, profound, and intimate level. And when you can reclaim that, it gives a woman power, not just power over someone, but the power to say, I am divine, I am beautiful, I am sensual, and this is my right. And that is empowering. The reason I am so emphatic about this Quran is because guess what? When you look at a woman who is not fully tapped into her sensuality, it's not just in the bedroom that she suffers. It's in the boardroom. It's everywhere. It's in the carpool when she's taking the kid. It affects a woman's ability to be fully present and fully tapped into her energy as a woman, as a parent, as a lover, as a business owner. And and that's why I'm on a you know my little crusade. <laughs> I tell you, um, I've struggled with this, not with orgasm, but with, cause I, I don't, I, <laughs> there she go. <laughs> I'm straight. Um, I'm good. Um, <laughs> but I've struggled, I've struggled my whole life with the 
kind of power and energy that you speak of when it comes to my sexuality, when it comes to my sensuality, when it comes to, I call it my womanity, when it comes to my womanhood. Um, mm. and, and knowing that I can literally shift an atmosphere just by showing up. Yes. Because yes. of the level of, because of the level of, of certainty of connection mm -hmm. that I have with myself that doesn't come from without that comes from within. Yeah. But it has always been a direct challenge with my faith because mm. my faith says, well, it's not even my faith that's saying it. Folk in the faith say one thing. And we, from the time we are born, girls are taught to deny ourselves everything but sacrifice. Yep. We are expected to sacrifice everything, including our bodies and not experience any of the benefits of pleasure. Yeah. And even in my radio show, it's, it's, it's rhythm and blues and soul music and alternative. And I take deep dives into music and issues about love. But even in that, my mantra is come for the love, stay for the pleasure. Mm, yes. Come for the love and stay for the pleasure. Because I believe that once we tap into our source, there's no other word for it. The source of what's inside of us, we become better citizens. We become better mothers. We become better friends. We become much better lovers, darling. Oh, yes. <laughs> but with the book, um, The Orgasm Prescription for Women, you also talk about how a lack of orgasm can be an indication of medical issues that might have otherwise been hidden. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we mentioned that on the on that Oz segment that for women who are not achieving orgasm, yes, it could be your own mental hangups, but it could also be a sign of diabetes, you know, type two diabetes, for example, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Um, certainly, there are other women who've had problems with neurological challenges like MS, um, and in addition, menopause. You know, seeing that waning libido and that inability to achieve, you know, adequate juiciness that we get in the arousal stage and then later orgasm. So in the book, I, I lay out, you know, a very detailed list of things that a woman should consider and that she can go to her primary care physician or her OBGYN to have them evaluated. Because, you know, I like, I like to give it the breakdown of normally our brain picks up signals in our environment from our beloved, or it could come from, you know, just within you're thinking, oh, I really want this tonight. And then the brain sends a signal to increase the blood flow and the lubrication to your lady parts. Mm -hmm. Now, if the blood flow to your lady parts is blocked or impeded because you have high blood sugar that's making your blood vessels all sticky, or high blood pressure that's made them so tight and, and constricted that the blood flow is not getting there, or your diabetes might be on that edge where it's destroying your nerve conduction, you're not gonna feel that sensation down there that leads to pleasure. So those are kind of the things that I want women to be aware of, because remember, diabetes and high blood pressure are called, both of them, the silent, the silent killer. killers. Because we don't have symptoms until something goes wrong, like a heart attack, a stroke, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so if we can be mindful to look for these little signals, and again, many women won't even mention this to their doctor, just like you said in the opening, 
people are afraid to even mention the big O. Yeah. So how often is a woman going to say to her physician, you know, I'm not really achieving orgasm like I used to. And I want women to be more aware that it could be a sign of something. That's not always. But what I advocate for is get your blood sugar and your blood pressure checked. Keep an eye on your weight and your cholesterol every year so that you can see if there's a trend. If something starts trending upward that you need to be in check, get it early because all of these things are treatable and preventable. Absolutely. What about our young women? You have a daughter. I have daughters. Two of my daughters are adults. One of them is gone on in her own life. And, and I still have two daughters at home and I got a brand, brand new brand new grandbaby and she's just a little tiny baby but how or what or when is it appropriate and how is it appropriate to discuss pleasure with our girl children mm, that's a beautiful question we have to do it early and often and without any shame and without any you know I grew up in a time when a lot of people, and people do it today, people called them private parts. Yes. And there's a movement among sex educators to not necessarily call them private parts because that means we need to hide them and we have to be ashamed of them. No, they're your parts. It's part of your body and your vagina is just like your elbow. It's a part of you. And there are parts of you that create pleasure. And when it's appropriate, you and your beloved may go there. Now, the word private comes in when you find your daughter on the couch masturbating, you know, out out there. You say, honey, it's your body. You have a right to touch it. It might give you pleasure. But I think you should do that in your bedroom with the door, you know. So it's not this this feeling that, you know, you want to shame them or make them feel like, oh, I can't touch. Oh, that's dirty or it's wrong. We need to be able to have the conversation, just like if you saw your kid picking boogers, you'd say, honey, can I get your tissue? You know, <laughs> I see you got some books. You know, I mean, okay, that was probably a gross example, but we have to feel comfortable talking about the body and not making girls feel like it's something so taboo because when those hormones kick in and it's a natural phenomenon for us to start feeling, ooh wait, that boy, suddenly he, he used to be annoying, but now suddenly he's looking, how is she going to process that? How is she going to process that if she's feeling like all of those sensations and those things are wrong or bad? We have to let her know that in the context of a great relationship, yeah, that's normal. And you know, yeah, you're probably going to kiss a few frogs before you find your prince charming. But I believe those conversations have to happen early, often, and with no judgment. And do your best, parents. I know it ain't always easy to just try to act like, okay, this is not an awkward conversation I'm having. I'm just going to act like it's totally fine. It's not awkward. Like my kid, initially my kids thought I was crazy. Well, they still do kind of think I'm crazy, but <laughs> I'm, I'm very open with them. I tell them the truth. And, and I remember one of my family members pulling me up saying, you know, you, 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 the way you talk to your children. And I said, first of all, the way I talk to my children is my decision. It's my business, mm-hmm. but I tell them the truth. I'm not yeah. going to lie to you about what happens if someone touches you and your body responds, but you know, it's wrong. I'm not going to lie because that's what keeps that silence that those exactly. private parts. I'm not going to lie to you about sex being a pleasurable experience, but you have to know when you're ready for it. You mm-hmm. know when you're ready for it. 
And, you know, in the context of that, we live in such a culture of that, that does not respect women. So Mm. what do we teach our sons? What do we say to our young men about not just about respect and not raping and not violating women, but a woman's right to pleasure, a woman's right to know a woman's right to determine when and where and how and how good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, again, it has to happen early, right? We need to tell our young men that, you know, your body is a gift. Her body is a gift. And it's something that you exchange and you share consensually. And that means if it's a gift, you treat it with respect. You treat it with gentleness and care. And hey, guys, yes, you're going to feel some some twinges and some things going on. But you're not out just for your pleasure. Bear in mind, this is meant to be a mutual experience. If we can get boys thinking that up front, that's a help. And the second thing I'll say to the boys out there (laughs) is porn, it's ubiquitous. It's so easy to get a hold of. And more boys tend to consume porn earlier Mm -hmm. and more often than their female counterparts. And I would say this, bear in mind that porn is not a documentary. (laughs) It's fake. Yeah. is fake. Those are actors. And the stuff that they're doing with some of those girls may not be what a normal non-actor would actually enjoy. So you always have to be in communication with your partner. I am so grateful for this time with you today. Do you, I, I usually like to give the floor to my guest uh, to give a final word of encouragement, uh, uplift, um, to contribute something of, of greater value, a seed, if you will. Um, mm. I, I would love for you to have a few words and uh, for our black girl nerds. And for well, me, because I love you so much. <laughs> I love you too, Karan. You know you're my girl. <laughs> Through the years, across the miles, we both moved around and yes. we stay in touch. Yes. And I love it. <laughs> Well, you know what? I would say the thread that has gone throughout this entire conversation is to remind our our black girl nerds out there that you are a divine being and you have a right to pleasure. You have a right to orgasm. You have a right to just live fully and orgasmically. And the good news is you're already built for it. Um, We have this ability to tune into our senses and we can amplify and ride the waves of ecstasy. So that means you ain't got to worry about your partner. If your partner ain't got skills, you can amp up your own orgasmic potential. So anyone who's listening, if you would like to try the 21 day program that is in my book, the orgasm prescription, you can do it for free. Go to 21daysofbliss.com. And you can listen to a daily ritual, a meditation. There's a little sexploration activity. And doing these activities for 21 days is going to help you tune into your body's innate sensual capacity. And you may find, like many of my peeps have, that you're able to achieve orgasm without your partner doing anything. And I know that sounds crazy, but that's the uplift. Sounds delightful. (laughs) Sounds amazing. (laughs) 
So I just want to thank you, Karan. I love what you're doing, keeping it positive, bringing the love, and and just having this open dialogue. And remember, we we need to connect again around mental health. Absolutely, right? absolutely, yes, we shall. Dr. Andrea Pennington, author, super doc, guru, my muse, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure as always. In our final segment over at Klexicon 2017, Kayla and I was on a panel called Using Fan Power for Good. In this panel, we discussed how we've transformed fandom dissatisfaction into a force of greater good for creating stronger communities and increasing visibility in fandom. And the panel is moderated by Felisa Cassano, editor-in-chief and founder of Girls and Capes. on using fan power for good here today. Um, so a little bit about me. Uh, I'm the editor and founder of Girls and Capes, which is a web publication that focuses on intersectional representation and entertainment. Aside from that, and aside from some of the other organizations that I'm involved in, I'm also a chapter officer for the Philadelphia chapter of the organization Geek Girl Brunch, which is a social organization for geeky women and to people who, I, who identify as women and non-binary. Uh, it's really kind of national and international. So before we really get started, um, I would like to introduce our wonderful panelists, but I would like to have them introduce themselves. So if we could start just down at the end, if, if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and about the organization or publication that, that you're involved with. Okay, um, I'm Kayla, and I work for Black Girl Nerds. I help do a lot of the social media curating um, for the website and the main account and the podcast page. My name is Jamie Broadnax. I'm the managing editor and founder of BlackGirlNerds.com, and I do a lot. <laughs> um, not only managing a website, but also the social media accounts. I travel to different conventions around the country um, as press, as panelist. Um, and I've been doing that long and strong for about five years now. Um, I'm Rowan. Um, I'm a bit different because I'm not so much an organization or publication as I am a YouTube channel. Um, I make videos about uh, representation in pop culture and activism and stuff like that, um, specifically to do with gender and sexuality. Um, my name is Nicole, and I am one of the officers for the local chapter of Geek Girl Brunch, uh, Geek Girl Brunch Las Vegas. Um, I'm their event coordinator, but we kind of split all the roles between the four officers that we have. Um, it's kind of a younger organization. I know the overall branching one has been around for a while, but we just started in Las Vegas these past couple months, so we're looking forward to getting it off the ground. And I'm Vanessa. I am also a, an officer for the local chapter of Geek Girl Brunch. Um, I'm also a teacher, and I... And I, I don't know, but um, I, I'm the co co-founder, I guess, of the LGBTQ club at the high school where I teach. So, as you can tell, uh, we all come from pretty different backgrounds and, and a lot of different kind of organizational and uh, publication and online roles. So, we'll really be able to answer a lot of. If you guys have any questions, um, we'll have them at the end. Uh, but we have lots of different experiences and lots of different levels of experience. Um, so, Quexicon really started out as a response to a specific event on TV that really just kind of served to sustain a really tired trope about a marginalized community. Uh, when you began working on your various projects, do you, did you feel that you were prompted by a particular event or uh, just something that in the long term you thought was needed? 
Um, I've always thought, at least when we started Geek Girl Brunch, um, I felt it was something that we as a community here in Las Vegas needed in particular. Um, I always felt um, a little bit ostracized from you know my normal high school and um, you know even just going through my UNLV degree and working that I was always a little bit different by being um, labeled as a quote-unquote geek and I just felt that it was something that we needed to see in Las Vegas as more of a community to come together for women and women specifically who are into um, into the type of things that we are also into. <laughs> um, well, for me, it was just not seeing images of women that look like me reflected in like the nerd and geek subculture. So uh, in February 1st of 2012, I did a Google search, black girl nerds, and nothing came up. <laughs> and even when I did a Google search under the images search, um, it was white women wearing glasses with black frames. So uh, that's what prompted me to start Black Girl Nerds. I had already had a blogger account. I had been blogging for a good four years at that point and decided to just create the page. And it quickly evolved because obviously there was a need to see images of black women that can see themselves in cosplay and gaming and comics and things of that nature. So. The Google search did, did me in. <laughs> uh, I originally started my channel because I'm um, not even like, like, this is nerd territory. This isn't even geek territory. I just finished my master's and I really miss researching stuff. I can dickhead. Um, so I was like, oh, what can I research? And I was working as a creative writer at the time, so um, a tutor. And so I was like, oh, I know, I already know this stuff. So I started making videos about narrative voice and things like that. And then I made a video about uh, writing diverse friendships and from there I was kind of like oh yeah no this is this is the path I want to go down and um, so it was less a single event the single events have sustained me so Orlando and every time like a cis actor is used to play a trans role and like all of these little things that accumulate just like spark again and again that need to be like okay no I'm do I am doing something that I think is necessary for me as well as for like other people for me, I just think women need to get together and, and fight for ourselves a lot. So I think that um, as far as, as Geek Girl Brunch goes, I, I really enjoyed the idea of just women getting together. And this is women and um, those that identify as women. And I think that together we are stronger. And whenever we get together and we have similar interests, we create this huge network and huge support group. So um, for me, the idea of, of that just prompted me because of course I'm a geek and belong to the LGBTQ community. And I thought that this would be an excellent place for me to feel like myself. You know, and, and I think that goes probably for all of us. You know, it's where we feel ourselves. So that's, that's how the geek girl prompted me anyways. Yeah, I mean, uh, with joining BGN, it was, uh, you know, bullying online because you might not know. People or guys might bully you saying you don't know as much as they think you should know about certain topics. And I was looking for someplace where I belonged. And as a um, mixed black Latina bisexual, it was like, where do I go? So, <laughs> like, um, um, and I found BGN and it's been great because there's a lot of talk about intersectionality and I feel like that's something we tackle and it's, it's home now. 
because we can tackle things and point out what we see and use what we have in order to bring certain things to light. So that was my that was my event is looking for a place where I belonged and then I found it. So. So when, when you started working on whichever project or any of the projects that you've mentioned, um, do you feel that your goal was more about showcasing voices that hadn't been heard before, or were you more concerned with uh, building a community within a fandom? I feel like I've done a little bit of both without realizing it. <laughs> um, because yes, I de definitely wanted to highlight marginalized voices. I actually used to run a website called NYND Scene, and it was about the independent film scene in New York City. And uh, I highlighted budding filmmakers uh, to have their works shown and seen. Um, so I've kind of always been that way as a blogger, is to highlight folks that just need to have their voices amplified. And the whole community aspect of BGN just sort of organically happened on its own uh, with respect to the live tweeting that we do. and. Uh, just a lot of the engagement that happens on Twitter specifically and social media abroad. So I did slowly develop this community without even realizing I was doing it. And uh, it's it's been a beautiful thing to just see it grow and manifest. I know for me in particular, and probably for both of us, uh, for Geek Girl Brunch, it was something that I, um, that I had hit on before, but I did wanted to see us come together as a community. I didn't feel like there was something out there um, that wasn't just kind of your standard typical Vegas scene, and maybe I wasn't looking hard enough. Um, but it was nice to be—it's nice to be at the center of something that seems to be able to reach out and, and touch other people's lives as importantly as it has touched mine. Um, so, and that's something that I want. And bringing us together, and right now, um, the last two that we've had—they've just sort of been getting to know each other and having these brunches and meeting new friends in our community that we never knew we had. Vegas is a big city, but it's not that big. Um, so. Um, and just by meeting these 24, 25 other girls, it's getting bigger every single time and we're generating this interest and we're hoping to sort of um, take this interest and do more with it. Going off of that too, just the community itself. I mean, I, we, uh, at our first brunch, I had a friend who showed up to, uh, that I haven't seen since I went to school with her. And um, I'm very vocal about my sexuality constantly. And so, I was talking to her about this, and she came out to me as being bisexual, and I had no idea. So just right there, that was huge for her. And because we had a geek girl brunch where we all got together and geeked out and had brunch and mimosas, you know, she felt comfortable enough to come out to somebody. And I, I just, right there, community, that was huge for me, and it was huge for her, and I, I think things like this are just so important. Um, I think that I was kind of vaguely looking for community. Like the YouTube community is something that gets like thrown around quite a lot. And I think that it's, I didn't really know if it was real. I, I had a channel many, many moons ago, um, but kind of there was so much abuse on the platform and there wasn't really a formed community yet that I like ran away and deleted all my videos and like cried in my room. Um, and so it was restarting. I think I wanted that sense of community and I think I definitely found it. There's as well as everyone who views those videos, there's kind of like uh, groups of women who are talking about this stuff. And every it's like little Venn diagrams, like everyone kind of knows someone in another group who knows someone, um, which is a really nice feeling to have. But I, I do think in terms of like lifting up other voices, that's something that I didn't really consider myself someone who 
had the ability to do that in a lot of ways because it was just kind of starting to use my voice and it's gotten to the point where I'm like, no, actually, this is something that I can do that's going to have like an impact beyond my particular remit on my channel. So I did, there's a couple of videos. I tend to do it with videos where I'm making it about a topic that I think more people need to hear about, but that isn't necessarily my my, my identity or my area of expertise. So I did, for example, a video on the casting of Hermione in the play in London. It was a black actress that got cast and there was kind of like this weird controversy around it. And so I basically made a video being like, this small segment at the beginning is Rowan being like, here are some facts. And then what she's going to do for the rest of the video is like point you towards black women who have talked about this in various ways that you might not have heard of, who have their own personal essays about it, or they have particular thoughts or they're working in the industry. Because I realized that that's like the audience that I have who's interested in these things I'm interested in are also seeking out all of the kind of people who are on this panel, the kind of people who are probably in the audience, to find their, to hear about their ideas, to find out about the kind of organizations they're part of. And so even though it's quite, you know, just the people who are your subscriber base, I think that it's ripples in a pond that can then kind of branch out into things that maybe they didn't think about before. So this is really all Jamie has built is PGN and you've done a really great job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I feel like I have the power to also, as I'm curating, have people reach out that they want to see something, so bring it to her attention. Um, so I think that, that having that uh, power to do that has allowed us to grow a lot more, especially with the respect to things that people want to live tweet, um, the things that they want to talk about, and having that open forum where we say, hey, what topics do you want to hear us talk about? Here's our link. Go submit it we'll do a podcast on it. You want to write an article, submit it in for us. Here you go. Being open is, is huge. So it's allowed us to grow that community extremely well. And I think that that's all coming from the power that you've given the rest of us that are a part of the team. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> right, so um, all, all of us, despite having our various experiences, were at one point beginners. Um, some of us more recently than others. Um, but what was the most most important you received when when you were a beginner, when you were first starting this this project? Um, what advice has helped you the most? For me in particular, um, it's just kind of a lot of trial and error. Uh, like I said, we've just been doing this. Um, we've had two two brunches, January and February. Our third one is coming up in a couple weeks here in March, um, and we didn't have a whole lot to go off of. Um, when we got together for the first time back in mid-November, a lot of us were like, okay, well, these are what the officer roles are, but I guess we'll just do whatever we're really good at doing. Um, so it hasn't, it hasn't been so much of, I would say, advice, but more uh, talking to the other officers and saying, okay, this is what I'm really good at, or I'm having trouble with this, please help. Um, and that's one of the biggest things that I have gotten away from this, even though it's been so, or taken away from this, I guess, even though it's been such a short amount of time, is asking for help is okay. Um, and there are so many other people out there who are willing to help you. So it's okay to get outside of your comfort zone um, and do bigger and better things because people will help you. People want to help you. Yeah. I did it on that one, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I emailed headquarters and I was like, how do I be a treasurer for this? And that was about it. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah, just to piggyback off of that, it's definitely been a community-centric uh, thing where I just get feedback from 
followers of the account, um, people that leave comments on SoundCloud for the podcast. And um, Kayla spoke to this as, you know, asking people what they want to see uh, with respect to different topics and and just having open conversations and having an open dialogue on Twitter. Um, I think there's something unique about BGN in the fact that we do a lot of direct engagement with people and it doesn't have to be something that's like focused on the website or the brand, so to speak, but just having conversations about, okay, did you see what happened on Walking Dead last week? Or or just anything that's in fandom uh, culture. And I think that's really important is to have that rapport with your, your followers and your fans. And uh, they essentially help build your community by you know, supporting your work, but then also getting their feedback and being very receptive to that feedback. I don't take things personal. Uh, you know, if there's things that I'm not doing well that needs to be worked on, then I'm definitely open to making adjustments because I know I can't do it all. I know that I'll make a lot of mistakes and I appreciate people taking time to just be like, hey, this should be done better or let me give you some advice on how to improve here. And it's it's worked pretty well so far. I think I'd say in terms of YouTube in particular, YouTube is not, YouTube, people like to think YouTube is a meritocracy and it really isn't. There are so many barriers to access and to success on YouTube and YouTube perpetuates that a lot with the types of people that it decides to promote. People who look like me, for example, don't do too badly on the platform mm. um, because I'm like a feminine white woman. But the, I'd say find your people, like find the people who are making similar content to you because it, you can start to build each other up. You can build structures within, and this counts for YouTube, but I think it counts for a lot of other platforms as well. You don't have to go along with like the power structure, I suppose, of, of the wider, like what is given legitimacy within that structure. You can start to build your own structures. You can find people that lift each other up and that have each other's back and that you can create together and collaborate. And I think that that is something that's just as powerful as having the validation of whatever sort of overlord you say is like the... The, the big people at the top and say these are the people that you should be interested in or, or looking for. I think finding those smaller communities is really important as well. Yeah, everybody pretty much covered it. The only other advice that I have is when you're creating these platforms, is be yourself. Um, that was the best advice I got when I was taking over to help um, do some of the tweets and some of the live tweets. It's just be, you know, you want to be personable. You don't want to seem forced. Um, you want to, you want to be sensitive to topics that might be um, really sensitive to people. So it, just knowing your audience, that was another big one too. Know who you're trying to talk to and, and be respectable. That's the best way to put it. And if you do offend someone, take the time to listen. Exactly. If you, if you offend someone, there's a reason um, why. Um, there are a lot of people out there that tell you that you're being too sensitive, you're not especially when you go back and look at the feedback that you get on from a podcast, from a topic you decided to run an article on. Nothing's too personal, but know that you take the time to listen. You can do a lot more good um, just by listening to your audience. Um, so as kind of all of us who are involved in any kind of fandom are aware, last year was not as necessarily, the past year has not necessarily been the greatest in terms of marginalized communities getting representation in a way that's you know, ethical and, and so, in some ways just not even fair. Um, when, when you notice these things happen in fandoms that you are really involved in, whether it's um, 
something that the creators do, such as um, writing an episode a certain way, or whether it's something that is happening within the fan community, um, how do you, at, like, with uh, your background, how do you address these particular things and try to use your fan power to make your fandom better? Well, it's very cathartic for me to do a podcast when I'm very upset about a character being killed off. <laughs> <laughs> um, <Sleepy Hollow. laughs> yeah, for the Black Girl Nerds community, yeah, Sleepy Hollow was gut-wrenching uh, for us because Abby Mills, first of all, is a character you rarely see in genre fiction. And um, this was a show that was just done so well first season and then second season, not so good. Um, but yeah, I, I use... Uh, by platform of podcasting, allowing people to hear other black women um, have, you know, a dialogue about what they feel about this topic and things that we need to see improve in this area. Because, again, we don't get to hear our voices very often on these kind of conversations. Um, editorials on the site where I've had several essays about Sleepy Hollow and just other um, fandoms in general. Also, our YouTube channel, just being able to um, articulate through vlogs and stuff to let folks know, you know, this this is not cool, and this is these are the ways that we need to improve. So, providing a platform like on both an audio level as well as a video level with YouTube, and just giving women a, ch a chance to have their voices amplified and heard. And also, with respect to our Twitter as well. Um, yeah. When someone sees something that may um, have upset them, well, we'll we'll look at it. They'll I love when they say, "Hey, Jamie, did you see this?" and at you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's an outrage throughout Twitter for about two and a half hours um, yeah. until we've completely read um, a writer creator. Um, it it's also again fostering that sense of community. They felt comfortable enough to bring that to our attention to where we could say, "Okay, well, that's messed up." Um, yeah. So I, I think that, that has worked out extremely well for us with the podcast, plus having people bring things to our attention through the Twitter as well. Yeah. That's another thing is listening to your audience. They, you may not be a part of that um, particular fandom, but they are just because there are so many. So you have to be receptive to whatever, what other people are interested in as well. Twitter's like really closed the gap between uh, sort of audience and creators, I think, um, in terms of the amount of writers and showrunners um, that are on Twitter is astounding. And I feel like that's kind of uh, one of the reasons why Lex's death had such an impact was how social media centric the behind the scenes team were, that it was there was no way they couldn't address it because they were on this platform where everyone was going off and it was like you we know you're seeing this like it in a way that I think a lot of other creators have been quite distanced and sort of autorial and 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 stuck step back from that um so I do think that having these conversations on social media and on Twitter in a very open way is something that's going to be increasingly a way in which fans uh, kind of, of of every kind of fandom of this type which is often kind of speculative or sci-fi fantasy are going to have more of an impact than I think they ever have before. I agree. Twitter is definitely um, a platform that has gotten a lot of attention um, from showrunners and writers. Um, unfortunately, I can only talk about personal experiences, um, but I am a firm believer in the power of uh, transformative works and sort of this sort of self-healing process where if you see something like in particular for me, I'm a big Supernatural fan, so the death of um, Charlie was a real kind of broke my heart there. Yeah. 
Um, so a lot of us, <laughs> so a lot of us took to uh, Tumblr in particular. That's my kind of dark corner of the internet. <laughs> to write these these works or make these uh, fan arts about this this person that we love and that we feel like we've done injustice that we have felt that we have been done injustice to and about this character because we felt like that was someone that represented us. So that's I can't really relate that to Geek Girl Brunch very much, but I do know that from inside of a fandom point of view, having those people who contribute with fan art that contribute with those kind of it might feel like self healing, um, almost like feel good fix it sort of. Uh, fan fiction, um, but we, I feel like we need that. That's something that brings us together. It says, yeah, I agree. That was messed up. Um, this is how we wish it would have gone. Um, so that's kind of how I feel about it. I think, and then more on like the positive side, <laughs> because it is. I mean, when this happens, it is negative. But uh, at our last Geek Girl Brunch, we had a trivia, and I was in charge of putting the trivia together, and on that, um, she helped me with this one, too. Um, the in Overwatch, so if anyone plays the game Overwatch, the one character who's out as an LGBTQ character is Tracer. So I asked that in my trivia. I was like, which character is, is LGBTQ? And oh, actually, a lot of the and a lot of the women knew, which is kind of cool. And then we also gave out a poster which of Captain Marvel, which is like the female version of Captain America. <laughs> um, you know, so I think I'm not necessarily pushing an agenda, but getting the positive feedback out there. And then, kind of on the topic of Geek Girl Brunch, which is okay. Go for it, go for it. Um, so I started at the bottom, right? So being a teacher, and I'm, I'm a band director, so we have a podium we stand on, right? And my kids know it as my soapbox. So, you know, I've got that, I've got my LGBTQ club, but I also have Smash Club, which kids show up and they play Super Smash Brothers for like two hours after school on Fridays. And um, I love to talk to my kids in a professional manner so I don't get in trouble because apparently talking about this will get you in trouble as a teacher. Um, you, have, you, you have to get them to be tolerant. So when you hear young, the younger generation ever speak negatively about anything going on, I just as a suggestion, and this is what I do, spin it. Always try to spin it. Make it positive. Get them to be tolerant. Get them to understand why everything is happening the way it is and how to fix it. And I just wanted to add that, you know, they're listening, like the folks that are the showrunners and uh, the studios. Like, for example, in the comics world, Doctor Strange film that had released and they had cast Tilda Swinton as the Ancient One, who is an Asian character in the comics. Um, there was a huge outcry from the Asian American community, from the Blurred community. And, you know, a lot of folks' feet got held to the fire because of that. And recently, I had a conversation with the producer of Black Panther, and he said that Marvel Studios know that they're never going to make that mistake again. So it's good to know that the fans were loud and just being able to let everybody know how they felt about this and that the studios are listening. So um, even though it might sound ranty and it might sound negative that we're saying, hey, this is wrong, we need to keep doing that because they, they are, in fact, paying attention. That's very helpful to know. <laughs> so, in my own work with Rose Capes and the different organizations that I'm involved with, uh, the most rewarding thing for me has definitely been connecting with readers from the site and creators. Um, so, what would you say has been the most rewarding part of your journey? Um, I would say, like, there's two kinds of comments that I get that are, like, both equally rewarding in completely, like, opposite directions. Um, so, the first is the people who are, like, 
I never thought of that. Like, I've never... That hasn't occurred to me. And a lot of the time it's because these the people who are watching my videos aren't just, like, women or LGBT people. They're, they're people who are like, oh, okay, I want to I learn more. And I think that that's really valuable to have people who are like, okay, I'm going to step outside of my own personal experience. I'm going to learn more about it. And I'm going to... I think that admitting that you don't know something is very difficult for some reason at the moment. I think that that's like that. I, the idea is that like you should know everything already. Um, and so I really appreciate it when people say, actually, yeah, this is something that I didn't know about and this is really fascinating and like I'm going to look, look up more about it. But then on the opposite side of things, I think that there's huge value in these comments from people who are like, this is all I think about. Like I've had videos about about like the bury your gaze trope where some people have been like, I've never noticed that before. Oh yeah, there is actually quite a lot of death that happens. And then there are some people who are like, I didn't come out for so long because all I saw in the media was like us dead. And I thought that was all I could be. And I thought there would never be happiness. And like, I'm so glad people are talking about it. And I think those two opposite reactions of like, I've never thought about this and this is all I think about are both very rewarding and that there's that a video that I've made has like been on that person's path in whichever direction they're going. So, like, on the superficial side, <laughs> it's rewarding to be able to have an interview with Idris Elba and him telling you, <laughs> him telling you that he's a nerd. Like, you know, like, that's cool. Like, having Shonda Rhimes say that, you know, you're one of her favorite people to follow on Twitter and her saying that she's a nerd and tweeting to you, yeah, I took my kids to comic book day. And, like, that is awesome. Um, so, yeah, that's very rewarding. But then doing panels like this and having conversations with groups of folks like you, and I've done many panels within the last few years of running BGN, and I've had so many women come up to me and say, just because of your website, I decided to get into gaming. I've decided to start programming my own app. I decided to get into LARPing because I figured it was a white fandom. So seeing black girl nerds and seeing you guys talk about it and celebrate cosplay, and, 28 Days of Black Cosplays is a great uh, trending hashtag on Twitter that Shaka Cumberbatch created. You know, seeing us celebrate ourselves in these fandoms empowers so many women to participate in them when in the past they felt marginalized because they didn't see themselves reflected in it, so they didn't feel like they belonged to it. So that's very rewarding, getting those kinds of comments at the end of the day when I when I do these panels. I think for, for Geek Girl, it's just we got this community together and there's a whole bunch of women now can get together and geek out. I mean, you know, we, I've, I've always had Nicole, you know, we always game together. Um, but there are some, there are a lot of women that show up to Geek Girl Brunch that don't have friends they game with. And they just, they discovered it on Facebook because somebody posted it. They're like, oh my God, I can talk about this fandom and I can talk about this fandom because not all of us are in Overwatch. Not all of us are in the Marvel and DC and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, and not all of us are into certain TV shows. So I think um, the fact that we got together with such a diverse group of women, they were able to find someone that basically had the same, I don't know, likes and, and I don't know what the word is, but interests. And just something like that, like we, she's, I would call her my security blanket uh, blanket for a lot of reasons. Um, 
But one of the most rewarding things for me about Geek Girl Brunch is our very first brunch was Harry Potter themed because we thought it'd be super cute. Let's get everyone together and we'll sort them and it'll be like a little housing ceremony. It'd be cute. Um, and so these two girls showed up and they were each other's security blanket and they got sorted into different houses. And I could see it on their faces. They were like, oh no, this is not what I want to do. By the end of the brunch, they were just so, they were so communicative with everybody around them. They were having such a good time. They were talking to each other and just having them come up to us and say, you know, I was really nervous about this. I was really nervous that I wasn't able to sit with my friend at this event. That's really scary for me, but I had a really good time. For me, um, for somebody who suffers from that kind of social anxiety, um, it was really nice to be able to help somebody who was kind of like I mean, yeah, I don't know if you know, but geeks may be introverts sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's helped a lot with, with social, social aspects, for sure. Yeah, no, and I, I fall into this category of an extroverted introvert where I like you if I know you, I'm, go I'm outgoing if I know you, and getting to know all of the girls within BGN um, in the community has been probably the most rewarding. I've made a lot of really good friends, and it it's been able to expand my horizons, have things brought to my attention that I never probably would have had brought to my attention. Um, and yeah, superficially, it's cool. You talk to LeVar Burton on the phone. I mean, that was like <laughs> probably the highlight of my year last year. Um, it's like the king of geeks. But um, no, really meeting everyone and finding people that have the same exact interests as you. And there are so many of us behind the scenes. Our Slack goes off like maybe every five seconds. <laughs> Not exaggerating. My phone. Yeah, <laughs> my phone will go off. But because we are so excited about the kind of things that we want to bring to the audience for BGN, it, it's working with people that are as excited as you are and as motivated as you are, it, that's probably the most. I mean, then seeing the result of people saying, oh, that was awesome. Oh, who chose that? Or this article is amazing. Who wrote that? And seeing people within the organization get the praise that they deserve is really rewarding as well. All right, and, I, and you did, for my last question, it's something you guys did touch a little bit on a little earlier. Um, but what advice would you give to people who are looking to start their own organization, their own project, their own community? Um, for someone who's, if they're just starting out, they're, they might be a little nervous or not quite know what they should do. Do it. <laughs> you want to do it, do it. Um, my, I, actually, I just think my advice would be definitely find people, like-minded people, and get their help. See what they do and then make it your own. And talk about it. Talk about it a lot and talk about it to anybody who's willing to lend their ear for like two seconds. Even if they're not willing. Yeah, and then you'll get the people who will be like, okay, he's like, great, that's super. Um, but then you get the other people who are like, oh, that's really cool. I wanna help, what can I do to help you with this? Um, and so that's kind of one way to definitely build, a, you know, you have to build that sort of community and it's really hard, especially if you feel like you're the only buddy who's out there doing it. Um, but talk about it, talk about it a lot and be active on your social media as much as I hate social media. Um, you know, that's kind of the platform where everybody hears and then they share and it's that ripple effect that Rowan was talking about where it just gets bigger and bigger. So you have to talk about it and you got to go for it um, and ask for help. I say fill a void. I mean, that's basically how BGN has been able to grow and become successful is just finding those obscure pockets of culture, fandom culture, what have you, and just fill it. Because uh, everybody deserves to be heard, everybody deserves to be seen, and people will naturally gravitate to your platform if you see that, or if they see rather that they're being reflected in the work that you're creating. So, 
uh, just fill that void and just be prepared to do a lot of hard work <laughs> and, and invest a lot of your time into it. And if you're passionate about it, it won't be hard. But if you're not, you know, 100% into it, it's going to be a challenge. Build a team that you can trust, too. Um, if you feel like you can't, if you're not as strong in one part of building that platform, seek out the help. If you're not as social media savvy, seek out someone that may have um, a lot of experience doing social media curating because a lot of people aren't um, as into social media, um, but they want to build the website, but they need to promote it correctly. Um, so just making sure you reach out to the right people will help you go a really long way as well. Um, I think that a lot of people, especially kind of from marginalized groups, think that it's it's almost like there's like a collateral damage that they have where if they express themselves online, especially that there's like a price they have to pay. And that price is like harassment or abusive comments. And this is especially true for YouTube. I know so many people who have come up to me who have been like, I really want to start, but I'm really worried about all the comments in the comment sections. I'm like a very big fan of the phrase do no harm, take no shit, because <laughs> I feel like it's, it, that's what it is. It's like you, you admit when you hurt people, you look into things that you're doing wrong and try not to do as little harm as possible, but at the same time, don't take shit from anyone. Like, my general way of thinking about it is like, wherever you are online, this is especially in online spaces, because I think that they, people react to them differently than they would in, in real life. If someone says anything to you online that you wouldn't accept them saying in your living room, they're done. Like they, you, you don't have to put up with that. If you, if you worked at a shop and someone started to say abusive comments to you, you could ban them from that shop. Like that's a perfect, that's a thing that people do within their workplace. They say, "Cool, you're not allowed in this, what's an American CVS anymore." <laughs> <laughs> Relatable content. Um, but that's I think something that online people don't quite realise because it's this whole rhetoric around like free speech and all that kind of stuff. But it's like if it, the internet, you have your little corner where that's your website or your YouTube channel or your group whatever and you have the right to protect that and to have that as a space where you can have engaging discussions you can disagree with people but anything that wouldn't be acceptable in real life doesn't have to be acceptable you don't have it's not this thing that you have to weather in order to be able to have a voice online you should be able to have a voice and not have to deal with that stuff as as like a side effect so just yeah don't don't be afraid to put down boundaries and to do all of the stuff that these guys have said like find your people have your voice be heard at the same time. All right, thank you all of you for, for your uh, words of wisdom. Um, now I'd like to open up to the audience for any questions you might have or any... Hi, do you think that fans are at a point now where they do hold this like, power and they are influencing the decisions that these people are making? Do you think that this is happening more now or do you think not so much? I definitely think it's happening more because of the Twitter platform, but I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I think that um, people who are producing these shows and movies that are being seen to a wide audience need to realize that they're not just writing into a void or speaking into a void and they need to be held accountable for these actions if they hurt somebody of a marginalized group or um, you know, are doing something that just kind of morally is not so awesome. Uh, but I, but I mean, they need to be able to hear our voice. So I mean, yes, I think they're becoming more powerful, and yes, I think it's a good thing. I think it's intersecting with other things that are happening in mainstream media. So I think that the way I see it, fandom people who engage in fandom are like the minority of people who often consume the film or the TV show, but they're often the loudest. And I think for a long time they were ignorable because they were existing on Tumblr 
or they're existing on Twitter, but kind of within themselves. I think the big difference has been recently, there's been a lot more both geek blogs, but also more mainstream media that's picked up on this. So like the, um, the Beauty and the Beast story, right? So that a, beauty, a character in the new Beauty and the Beast is going to be gay. That's the thing that broke a few days ago. And like a few years ago, that probably would have been rumblings online and Twitter would have picked it up. But this is in like mainstream news outlets. This is being discussed. I got like contacted by a national radio show in the UK to go on and talk about it the other day because this is something that's within the conversation. So I think what's happening is people who are super passionate about it are engaging and then they're kind of disseminating that passion and that interest and that importance out into the wider media in a way that's kind of I think happening at the same time. Yeah I think social media is like a groundswell for all these conversations because you tweet something out and then you know it could be anybody it could be somebody super famous it could be a tv showrunner and they'll retweet it and then all of these online journalists and publications see that tweet and then they run a story based off of it. So like I said, with the Doctor Strange situation, not only Marvel Studios said they learned their lesson, but Scott Derrickson has even gone to Twitter and said that, you know, he made a mistake. So, um, yeah, fans are definitely, I think, do have some sort of power in that respect. But a lot of these folks still have a long way to go. I mean, Sleepy Hollow, they haven't been listening to us. Um, and yeah. Marvel still has its issues. The Mockingbird issue that happened last year yeah. where she got ran off of Twitter and Marvel did nothing to stand by her. Yeah. Um, it took the male Marvel writers um, to come to her defense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that us pointing that out and having um, the platform on Twitter to point out and get Marvel's attention, that really helped somewhat, but the fact is they should have been on the forefront of that from the mm -hmm. beginning, um, so that someone's not ran off of Twitter by uh, hurt males that feel like their, you know, <laughs> ego has been bruised by a female character. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, but I think it's doing a lot of good because a lot of things get brought to the attention. And like you said, I, I I don't know if they're gonna learn. We're still getting Iron Fist, so I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. so we still got work to do. We still got a lot of work to do. I work for NBC. I'm not important, but I talk to people who are important there. Um, and don't forget that the industry itself—they're connected to each other. So pretty much everyone heard about what was happening over on the hundred. Like people who are totally unrelated, but are still in the industry, heard something. Now, what they chose to do anything about it? Is another thing, you said, you're still getting this a long way to go, but it's not just like you're just talking to Jason and Nelly and him. A lot of other people are hearing what you have to say when you put that out there. Even over on the other side of the pond. But it was like, it was like crap for us, right? Because we get it later than you. So it was just like, oh, looks like she's dead then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it wouldn't be like a lesbian storyline unless they like they killed one of them right off. after they had sex. Yeah. So, well, I talked about Twitter and Tumblr. I work for Facebook. Do you have any feedback for Facebook or Instagram about how we can help build and empower these communities? I mean, those hashtags seem to trend real quick. Um, uh, yeah. Well, one thing that has been expressed to me by other creators and other bloggers is. Um, 
harassment that has come from verified accounts. I, I don't know if you've seen any of those. Um, there have been people who have tried to block Facebook accounts from commenting on their posts um, because of harassment and have tried to report them and for whatever reason the, the site will not let them do so and that would be um, and that would be one thing because I, 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 that was really going around in some of my blogger circles that people were very very concerned about because it was mostly um, it was specifically bloggers who were Jewish who were getting anti-Semitic mm. harassment I think I just use Facebook very differently than I use other platforms. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like Facebook, <laughs> Facebook for me is like uh, it's private groups, I suppose. Like the way that I'd use it most would be it, Twitter's very like publicly out there and talking amongst people. We have like a couple of DM threads um, between people, but mainly Facebook for me is is individualized groups, um, and they can be super powerful. I think that building communities on Facebook is great because you have the ability to like store conversations almost in a way that Twitter is very transient and it kind of like comes and goes whereas on Facebook you can kind of search within a group and do all that kind of stuff and I think that especially with LGBT people having that kind of secret group element has allowed a lot of people who aren't out to find communities which I think is really really valuable but how much Facebook itself can do around that I'm not entirely sure but I think as a platform it has a lot of uses that I think might not necessarily be obvious straight away to the kind of community that I'm part of, if that makes sense. Um, to answer your question, I'm sorry, I know I'm not prepared. <laughs> yeah, sure. I think the reporting system, something's, I don't know, something's wrong with it. Because I know I've seen all kinds of racial slurs being thrown at the reporting. It doesn't necessarily say certain words, um, whatever, certain words that you say, it's like, oh, well, you're blocked for 30 days. Like, wait, what? Or, you know, it's not, it doesn't seem like the exchange of, you know, why certain people are getting blocked as opposed to why certain people are not being able to be reported. There's something missing in, in there that I, I don't know with the computer, the algorithms or whatever, something's not making a connection. That needs to be reworked needs to be looked at because I've seen it, I've seen people getting like I've been blocked for nothing. So I that has to be that has to be looked at because it, it's horrible. Yes. I would just like to go back to the very first question that's kind of um when you talk about fandoms having an impact. What do you say to those people that say that fandoms are having too great an impact and they're taken away from the creativity of the mm -hmm. authors and their creations and their, because I've heard it over and over again, I want to punch them in the throat sometimes. So, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's how do you battle that with other, you know, just simply like, well, I like that character, you know what I mean? It's like, what's your, your response to people that can't, can't see the impact that their writing is actually having? It's not always just creative liberty, it seems. It's like, it's very hurtful and it's detrimental. So, how do you combat that kind of those responses? If you can't think of like something to do with an LGBT character other than kill them, like you're a bad writer. <laughs> like I'm sorry. Like yeah. it, the thing is, like the, so many of the excuses that are, they are excuses that are used to kill off characters. This is like specifically because we're at this particular convention. I use this as an example. Um, the excuses that are used to kill off these characters are that it is to show that anything can happen on the show. To show that the show is, you know, it goes there, it's dead. I'm like, no, statistically, you are much more conventional by killing off an LGBT character than you are than making them live. 
Like it would be much more radical for you to just let them be happy. But that's not, I think that this lack of, I don't know whether it's like deliberate ignorance that it's kind of like la la la, don't want to listen to it or whether I mean, they understand yeah. where I'm like, you, if you actually knew about the history of the representation of people that you're representing, you wouldn't do this mm -hmm. because it's, there's so many more interesting things that haven't been done yet that you could be the pioneer for if you were a writer who had ambition and like you claim to. So I think it's just that idea of it's not, it's not limiting to point out that something's has a history of, and, and that something's maybe can be criticized. And if the writer still wants to go ahead and do it, then that's, they have to deal with that criticism. I just think our voices really need to be heard because I mean, like there are some creative liberties where you, you look at a video game and, and the woman is completely sexualized by what she's wearing. And so that's not a creative liberty that's selling sex. Right. So I would say we have to just keep talking. We have to keep going. I know I, I can't talk to you know the creator of World of Warcraft about the bikini armor that this female warrior has, but you better believe that I'm going to go to BlizzCon and talk about it to everyone who listen. And when Chris Metzen is in a room near me, I'm going to be loud. You know, I, like no, they're probably not going to listen. But if you keep talking, I feel like in how she was saying, someone's going to eventually hear you. All right, this will be our last question. So, in essence, why doesn't an actor like actually say, okay, so I've got these millions of weird, fabulous, sexy women behind me. If you kill me, their fandom will leave me. And are actors having that conversation with the writers in? Um, I think I want to give very quickly one example in Supernatural where uh, in season seven where Misha Collins was killed off the show very early in the season and the showrunners and everybody noticed, oh, viewership plummeted. So maybe he wasn't necessarily having that conversation with them, but they're noticing things like that. And if they have, and I think if they are smart at what they do, and they notice that they have this LGBT character, and they notice that they're bringing them in, I mean, they did eventually bring Misha Kong back because he was so important to viewership on that show, um, that I think that if they were smart show writers and have done their history and are really well-versed in writing, um, that they would realize that, no, we can't do that. And if they, if they do kill off this character, well, that actor is going to be able to use that found power that they generated by these amazing, wonderful queer women um, and others to be able to be successful in whatever they do next. So I don't think it's necessarily directly show related, but I think they will gain power from it. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Broadnax, M.R. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum podcast.